Well, good morning, Fellowship Brentwood. How's everyone doing today? Fantastic. Uh, I know some of you are looking up and saying, all right, there's a new guy. Let me address that issue first. My name is Mike. I'm one of the elders here at Fellowship Bible. Um, and uh, just a joy to be with you this morning. Um, as a group of elders, uh, we've decided to give the month of July off, or at least four weeks off to both Rob and Lloyd, so they can have a bit of a, bit of a break from pulpit responsibilities and duties. Let them enjoy some uh, additional space and time with families and with the Lord so that they can come back in the month of August refreshed, recharged, ready to bring you some more excellent sermons on Sunday morning. Uh, so I will be with you for the next four weeks. Uh, I was in Franklin uh, this time last year teaching a series on apologetics down there while Larry Kayser, our head of marriage and family ministry, was up here. And functionally, we've just sort of switched spots. Uh, and so I'm going to be leading you on a four-week study of apologetics here at the Brentwood campus. And I'm, I'm borderline giddy that I get to share this content with you. I'm super excited to be able to do this with you. I've been looking forward to this for months. Quick disclaimer, though, uh, the next four weeks, they're going to feel a little more like Sunday school than they are going to feel like normal church. And that's by design. This is kind of an equipping series. Uh, this is sort of a 101 level seminary class that we're going to be getting into. And I hope that for many of you, this is beneficial to your faith journey. Um, certainly, this has been uh, for mine. Little, little background story. Um, I became a Christian at the age of 21. Uh, I, was, I grew up in Western Canada. I attended the University of Calgary, which is in Alberta, Western Canada. Um, and I got a bachelor's degree in physical education. I played a lot of sports growing up, played a lot of sports at university. And I met a man on the basketball court at University of Calgary named Rod Sawatsky, who I befriended. Uh, well, after playing basketball with him and against him a, just a number of times, he was an exceptional basketball player. But I discovered after getting to know him a little bit that he was also an exceptional human being. And uh, after playing basketball one time, Rod invited me out to coffee just at the cafeteria in the same building where the, where the basketball gymnasium was. And I said, sure, let's go grab a coffee. And gosh, it, we weren't very far into our conversation before Rod was sharing the gospel with me. Now, I'm a guy who had never been to church growing up ever. I didn't know who Jesus was. I had never been to a church service before. Uh, I was a cold, uh, I had no, no uh, exposure to religion or Christianity. Um, and Rod drafted out the gospel for me on the back of a napkin. And I about fell out of my chair. Um, I didn't realize uh, my sinful state. I felt a weight of sin in my life, but I don't know if I would have called it sin. Um, and he had spoken to me about a love that never fails and about a provision of forgiveness for the sins I've committed against a holy God. And 15 minutes later, with tears in my eyes, my head is bowed and I'm receiving Jesus in the cafeteria right then and there. And uh, obviously my faith was born, my, my commitment to Christ was born at that time. The man who led me to Christ, his name is Rod, I discovered that he's a missionary with a group called Athletes in Action, which is a spinoff group of Campus Crusade for Christ. And Rod would disciple me. He would take time to take me through the Campus Crusade kind of discipleship curriculum. And one of the things he had me do about three weeks into my discipleship is he said, Mike, I would like you to share your decision for Christ with someone that's close to you. He said, I want you to be thinking about who that person would be. And I said, sure. So I mustered up my courage 
And I decided I was going to share my faith with my roommate, a guy named Jeff. So I said, Jeff, I want to talk to you about a decision that I've made that has some pretty significant implications. He says, oh, gosh, sure. What do you want to talk about? So we sat down and I began to tell him about my decision to become a Christian and how I've accepted Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. And I look up at Jeff and I lock eyes with him and I realize that Jeff is smiling. I'm going to myself, this is going pretty good. This is, this is going pretty good. Um, and then I tell him a little bit more about the forgiveness of sins and about the Bible and this sort of stuff. And I look up at Jeff and upon closer examination, I realize his smile is, is kind of more of a smirk. And so I, I called the time out and I said, um, help me understand your expression right now, my brother. I'm not sure what you're processing right now. And he looked at me and he said something like this. He said, Mike, don't you know that the Bible has been translated so many times over the ages that we've lost its original meaning? In fact, we have no idea what the first written Bible actually would have said. And I looked at him and I said, really? In that moment, a whole host of emotions came over me. The first one was, have I been duped? Have I gotten into this Christianity thing in an unfounded way? Have I put my trust in something by jumping the gun? And I didn't know how to answer Jeff. I, I was second guessing my faith up and down at that moment. So I went back to Rod and said, Rod, tell me about the credibility of the Bible. How did this document get handed down over time? And Rod would give me an answer that was satisfactory to me. But I got to tell you that in that moment, my faith was rattled and I was second guessing my decision for Christ in the moment because all of us have played this childhood game called telephone where someone whispers something to the person next to them, whispers that thing to the person next to them and so on and so forth. And you don't go very far down the line before that message is completely corrupted. It's completely different. And I thought to myself, is this what happened to the New Testament? Is this what happened to the Bible? Well, again, Rod would give me an answer that to me was satisfactory, but that initial experience of sharing my faith, it would mark me for a really long time. I had a, a hesitancy that evolved in my spirit that made me really cautious to reach out to someone and share my faith because I felt like when I stuck my hand out the first time, I kind of got it slapped. I was handed an objection, a counter that I didn't know how to answer, and that made me uncomfortable. And there was a timidity in my spirit that lasted for a really long time after that. I'm not sure if any of you have had a witnessing experience that didn't go very well, and you might be able to relate to what I'm talking about. Well, fast forward four years. Uh, I've moved from Western Canada. I'm now living in Southern California, and I'm at a church, and there's a poster on the wall of the church. And it's advertising a guy that's going to come give a talk at Biola University. And the guy coming to give a talk is a dude named Hugh Hewitt. I'd never heard of him before, but apparently Hugh Hewitt was some conservative radio talk show host who also is a contributor to the Washington Post. And it said he's coming to give a talk at Biola University in two weeks' time, and it even gave the title of his talk, Robust Christianity in an Age of Unbelief. I don't know why, I still remember the lecture title, Robust Christianity in an Age of Unbelief. And I thought, well, that sounds interesting. I'm going to go check it out. And I went to Biola that night and I heard Hugh Hewitt talk and I got to tell you that my jaw was on the floor because I heard a guy for 90 minutes give a reasonable defense filled with evidences and reason and sound thinking as to why Christianity was true. Not just the religion that he preferred over others, but why Christianity was true. And I'm like, you can defend this stuff? Are you kidding me? 
And that night bore a desire to learn more about how do I articulate my faith in a way that can demonstrate the reasonableness of it and the truthfulness of it. And that lecture at Biola that night would become a participant in a certificate program, and then I would go on to do a master's degree. And my love of apologetics has evolved more and more ever since that time. Um, And what we're going to be doing over this four weeks is going to be looking into what is apologetics and what is the role of apologetics in the life of every believer. So let's start with the word itself. Apologetics comes from the Greek word apologia. And if you're a note taker, apologia is a Greek word which means a ready defense. A ready defense. Apologetics is the ready defense of the Christian faith. Anytime you look in the Bible at someone who's making a case for their beliefs, uh, a prophet making a case for God, uh, Peter or Paul going into a synagogue and reasoning with the Jews about why Jesus is the promised Messiah, they are all engaging in apologetics. It's you making a case for your beliefs. We see apologetics stated overtly in 1 Peter 3.15. Can I ask all of you to read this with me out loud? But in your hearts... Revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Few observations in this text. The first is this. There is a hope that is in us, my friends. That hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the world needs that hope. Jesus himself tells us in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. I've got to tell you, in today's culture, that sounds elitist, that sounds exclusive, that sounds bigoted, that sounds intolerant. It sounds like everything our culture despises right now, but that doesn't make it any less true. My friend, Jesus is the only hope the world has for eternal life, and we as ambassadors of Christ bear the responsibility of bringing that hope to the world. Peter tells us in this verse that we are to be prepared to give an answer. That word choice implies that people we come in contact with are going to have questions. And as I discovered with my friend Jeff, a lack of preparedness to be able to answer some of those questions can result in the conversation not going very well. Thirdly, Peter says that we are to give reasons for the hope that we have. Guys, I think this is where apologetics can change the tone of the conversation. Picture yourself walking onto the campus at, I don't know, let's just say Vanderbilt University, and you walk up to a professor there that you know to be a very outspoken, very publicly professing atheist. And you go to the professor and say, Professor, I believe that Jesus rose from the grave. What would they say to you? If you said, Professor, I believe Jesus rose from the grave. Well, they would probably say something like, well, isn't that cute? Tell me your uh, feelings on the Easter bunny and the round earth hypothesis or something like that. Right? They would probably have a bit of a salty, perhaps mocking tone. But what if instead you said, Professor, I have excellent reasons for believing that Jesus rose from the grave. You see, one is a statement of belief. The other suggests that that belief can be defended. And while they still may have a salty tone or a salty response, you might hear them say, you have excellent reasons for believing Jesus rose from the grave? Okay, that's interesting. Tell me what you got. I'm all ears. 
You see, being able to give reasons for your beliefs results in you having a slightly different conversation with an unbeliever. It sets you up for more credibility when you suggest that your position statement is not just something that's founded in blind faith, but it can actually be defended. Lastly, and perhaps most importantly, Peter tells us to engage in these conversations with gentleness and respect. Guys, our message is packaged in a person. It's packaged in a person. And the candor we have in approaching these types of conversations is something we can never lose sight of. And I'll tell you transparently, there's times I've seen this not done well. Uh, I've witnessed some uh, debates at Biola University between Christian apologists and people of other belief systems, whether it be atheist or other religious uh, positions and so forth. And I've seen the Christian so overwhelm and so dominate their opponent that they won the debate, they won the argument, but they probably lost the soul in doing so. Why? Because they came across as the arrogant, know-it-all Christian that smells of a Pharisee. Guys, when we engage in eternal conversations, our word choice, our demeanor, our conduct, it has to smell of Jesus. It's gotta be laden with humility and love and grace and patience. Uh, we've got to be humble. We need to be bold in our witness of Christ, but we need to do so with gentleness and respect. That is so important. All right, let me move forward. Why study apologetics? I wanna make a case for you this morning that everybody in the room here today, without exception, should have a basic grasp of apologetics. This is not something we leave to the scholars, to the university professors. Apologetics is something for everybody in the room, and I wanna give you three reasons why I feel that way. Number one, apologetics can be lead directly to salvation decisions. Apologetics is a tool that God can use to lead directly to salvation decisions. Now, I'll be the first to acknowledge that most people receive Christ because they feel something here. They feel something in their heart. They hear the gospel, they recognize the weight of their sin, and they feel or perceive a provision for that sin and to have their sins forgiven, and they emotionally respond to the gospel. But for some people, their head acts as a gatekeeper to the heart. And their head, their reasons, their objections up here will prevent their heart from moving and responding to the gospel. And for these types of people, they need to get those objections unraveled and unwound before it'll give the heart permission to move. Some examples of this. This guy on your screen. This is Clive Staples Lewis. Yes, a very bad name. C.S. Lewis is how you and I know him today. Lewis had a very well-formed atheism from the time of his childhood. His mother died when he was very young, and he reasoned from her death that God must not exist. Why? Well, when his mother got cancer, he prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed to God, please save my mom. And then when she died, he said, Lord, I know you've heard, brought people back from the grave, from the dead. Please bring my mom back to life. And he felt that God didn't answer any of those prayers. And so therefore, God must not exist. And he formed a very hard heart from this experience, a very well-formed atheism. And all the way up until he was a student at Oxford and then a fellow at Oxford, he felt like he had strong foundations for an atheist position. But he befriended a guy on campus at Oxford, a professor of Anglo-Saxon, a guy named J.R.R. Tolkien. You might recognize that name as the author of The Lord of the Rings. And they formed a friendship. 
They had a lot of things in common. They loved a lot of the same things. And Tolkien helped Lewis to talk through and reason through his objections to Christianity. And Lewis discovered ways of working around them. And he would ultimately become a Christian. Arguably, to this day, the most articulate and ardent defender of the Christian faith. If you have never read anything by C.S. Lewis, that is your homework assignment from today. You need to read something from this man. Your mind will come alive from that experience. You might recognize this guy. This is Lee Strobel. Strobel's wife came home one day and had announced to her husband, Lee, that she had decided to become a Christian. And he functionally said, you did what? You see, Lee thought that Christianity was nonsense. He thought any faith-based position was absolute nonsense. And he mocked his wife for a while. And then he said, you know, I'm going to go on better than this. I'm going to prove that you made a stupid decision. And what Lee did as an investigative journalist for the Chicago Tribune newspaper was he decided to set his investigative journalist skills and put them to the test. And what he was going to do is set out to disprove Christianity. And he collaborated with some coworkers at the Chicago Tribune and they agreed on a battle plan. Lee said this whole Christianity thing hangs on a thread. It all hinges on whether or not this Jesus guy resurrected from the dead. So he said, so I'm going to set out to disprove the resurrection of Christ. One of his coworkers said, aha, this New Testament is written by this guy named Paul. Most of it's written by him. How about I set out to disprove the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, who the Christians call Paul now? He said, good plan. They went their own separate ways. Do you know that nine months later, they got back together, compared notes, and unbeknownst to each other, had both independently, without consulting each other, had decided to become Christians. Why? Because they both realized they were banging against a brick wall that was going nowhere. They both discovered what they were fighting against was absolutely true. Lee, since becoming a Christian and discovering that Jesus did resurrect from the grave, because there's massive implications in your life if that did happen, he set out to tell people about his journey. And he wrote a book called The Case for Christ, where you can learn about that story. He's also written The Case for Faith, The Case for Easter, The Case for Creation, and so forth. You'll find a pattern in these guys that become a Christian through apologetics. They tend to make a lot of noise when it happens. Another one is this guy, Anthony Flew. You might not recognize the name. He was considered the world's most foremost atheist for literally 50 plus years. This guy literally wrote the agenda for intellectual atheism until he changed his mind. The subtext of the book says how the world's most notorious atheist changed his mind. Why did Flew change his position? Why did he decide to abandon his atheism after 50 years? Listen, all the educated atheists looked to this guy to make sure they had clear thinking to be able to defend their views. And the guy at the top of the thought ladder changed his mind. This had massive implications. And he wrote a book to talk about why he did it. He said, I looked at the evidence for intelligent design. I looked at the evidence for the fact that there has to be an intelligent mind that created the universe and guides it to this day. He says that what we look at it for the unlikelihood that this would have happened by chance, he said, it's astounding. An intelligent mind has to have guided this process. And he wrote a book about it to prove to his academic peers that he hadn't just flown over the cuckoo's nest and completely lost his mind. And you can tell in his book that he's talking to his peers and demonstrating he still has a proper thought process. He hasn't gone senile, right? Even though they thought that. Here's my favorite picture of the morning. Next person in line is Chuck Colson. Uh, Chuck Colson, you can tell this is a very flattering photo um, from an uncomfortable time in his life. Um, you may not know this, but Chuck Colson was a speechwriter for President Nixon. And he was actually implicated in the Watergate scandal. 
And when Chuck was in prison behind bars doing some time in the slammer, the prison chaplain didn't hand him a New Testament through the bars. He handed him a copy of C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. And Colson says this about the experience. He said, while in prison awaiting trial for my role in the Watergate scandal, I was given a copy of Mere Christianity. I opened the book and found myself face to face with an intellect so disciplined, so lucid, so relentlessly logical that I could only be grateful that I had never faced him in a court of law. Soon I had covered two pages of yellow paper with prose to my query, is there a God? Interesting. So I don't want to belabor the point, but people who overcome their intellectual objections and become a Christian, this is one of the reasons why we have apologetics. This can be a direct path to a salvation decision. That's reason number one. But reason number two is this. Apologetics can be a tool that God uses to be able to weaken an unbeliever's confidence in their worldview. Apologetics can weaken an unbeliever's confidence in their worldview. All right. I'll offer this to you. No one got this right in the first service. So second service, this is your time to shine. All right? Who is that? Say it out loud. That is Madeline Murray O'Hare. You got the $10 question right. Fantastic. That is Madeline Murray O'Hare. Now, many of us would say, hang on, I know that name. But you may not know why you know that name. Let me explain it to you. In the 1950s, she had a young son who was uh, growing up through elementary school. And Madeline Murray O'Hare is an atheist, a very, very firm and committed atheist. And she didn't like that her son had to pray before school started every day. And she said, I'm an American. I too am protected by the Bill of Rights, which includes religious freedom in the uh, amendment number one. She says, why is my kid made to pray before every day at school? And she challenged us through the court system. And it went up and up and up, and about this level, it got combined with another court case of similar uh, uh, nature, and it went all the way to the Supreme Court, and she won. Madeline Murray O'Hare, my friends, is the reason why prayer is not permitted in public school anymore. Now, why is her picture on the screen? Madeline Murray O'Hare did a talk at Whittier College a number of years ago. It was in a room just like this, a full auditorium. And on this day, every seat was filled. And in fact, there was people lining up around the walls to hear what she had to say. And she gave a talk for about 45 minutes. And at the end of the time, she entertained questions. And there was a person in the front row here that raised their hand first. And she called on this person in the front row. And the person said, Miss O'Hare, he said, in our time together this morning, you haven't defined for us what an atheist is. I'm wondering if you could do that for us this morning. She said, sure. She said, there is absolutely no chance that God exists. None. He's really animated, kind of playing to the crowd. He said, thank you, Miss O'Hare. He said, a follow-up question, if I might. He said, Miss O'Hare, is there any... Um, sorry, let me, let me double-check my notes to make sure I got my question right. He said, of all available knowledge in the world... He said, Miss O'Hare, what percent do you suppose you possess? And he went on to say, you know, they estimate that there's roughly 10,000 spoken languages on the earth. So if you knew 1% of all languages, you'd speak 100 languages. And he said, and these languages come out of people groups with their, uh, their own histories, their own individual political structures and systems, their own people groups, etc. We would expect for you to know that too. And he goes on to say, and, you know, in addition to these uh, languages and histories and people groups, and he listed a number of the more complex sciences. And, and then he repeated this question. 
Miss O'Hare, of all available knowledge, what percent do you suppose you possess? And she says, 10%, really animated. He said, thank you, Miss O'Hare. One more question. He said, Miss O'Hare, is it possible that knowledge of God could exist outside of your realm of knowledge? And there was silence in the room, pin drop silence for a full 20 seconds. Guys, there is over a thousand people in the auditorium and there is a pregnant pause for more than 20 seconds of unbroken silence. And you have to assume that she's weighing her answers during this time. If he says, is, there, is it possible that knowledge of God could exist outside of your realm of knowledge? And she says, no, she gets a dunce cap. Why? She's just admitted that she only has 10% of all available knowledge. Very generous assessment, right? But she's just said, I only have access to 10% of all available knowledge. I've admitted 90% I don't even have access to. So if I say no, knowledge of God can exist outside of mine, I look like an idiot. But if I say knowledge of God can exist outside of my own, what happens? She's no longer an atheist. She's just graduated to becoming an agnostic. So she's in kind of a tricky spot here. So after 20 seconds of silence, you know what she says? She looks at the guy in the front row and she says, I'll give you a qualified no. Right? No, there's no chance that knowledge of God could exist outside my own. He says, okay, qualified no. He said, what's the qualifier? She says, next questioner, please. She would not entertain another question from this guy in the front row. Why? Because it became clear. Sorry, let me just relaunch this. It looks like I've lost my... It became clear that her worldview contains some flaws. Right? Her atheism, the, some of the flaws of it were exposed with her inability to address three simple questions about her worldview, right? So what can apologetics do? It can help to expose the weaknesses in someone's worldviews and shake their confidence in the beliefs that they hold to be firm. What's the third reason why every Christian in the room should have a basic grasp of apologetics? It's simply this. Apologetics can be a tool that can strengthen your faith and strengthen my faith. I shared with you this morning about my first experience sharing my faith with a friend. When Jeff gave me the objection that he said, hey, the Bible's been corrupted, that kind of shook me. That original objection I received as a believer, it kind of shook my core a little bit, and it made me second-guess the decision I had made for Christ. Now, I was only a three-week-old believer at that time or something like that, but again, that, that sort of rattled me. And I want to give everyone in the room here permission. There will be times in your Christian walk when you will second-guess some stuff. You might have doubts about your faith. You might have objections that aren't resolved about the faith that you profess. That's okay. That's okay. They call him Doubting Thomas in the church because he wanted to see proof. Remember, it was the church that branded him Doubting Thomas. Jesus only gave him good answers. Guys, we need to work through our objections. We need to work through our questions because when we do so, it will strengthen our faith, make us more resolute. It'll improve our confidence to share our belief with others. But it'll also make sure that we don't abandon the, the, the faith that we profess. There's a strangely alarming statistic about the number of kids that grow up in a learning center and, and they sing the songs and they pray the prayers and they memorize the verses and then they go off to college and they abandon the faith of their youth at college or university. Why? Well, I think they enter a strong intellectual climate and for the first time they meet smart people who disagree with them religiously. And I think their childhood faith folds because they haven't been able to put on any intellectual muscle yet. And guys, apologetics can do that for you and it can do that for me. All right, 
I want to switch, and with my time that remains this morning, I want to spend some time looking at what I call the Jeff objection, right? I want to look at, hey, has the Bible been corrupted over time? Has this thing been handed down over the ages, and did it get somehow lost in translation when it got passed down to us? And I discovered when I went to seminary, Jeff's not the only one to put forth this position. I learned that the Mormons, the Latter-day Saints, article number eight of their faith says that we believe that the Bible is accurate only insofar as it has been properly translated. The inference there is that they say the Bible hasn't been properly translated. If you learn a little bit about Islam, they also say that the Christian scriptures have been corrupted. They feel we put forth a twisted position on Jesus because our scriptures have been tampered with. It's been corrupted. Are these guys right? Has our, has our Bible been tampered with somehow? Well, I want to look at the evidence, and I'm going to cram about a semester course in the next 12 minutes, and we're going to see, we're going to see how we do in this regard. We're going to ask the question, how trustworthy is our copy of the New Testament? Okay, how trustworthy is our copy of the New Testament? And I use the word copy intentionally, and it's for this reason. We no longer have the originals. Uh-oh. We no longer have the originals. A skeptic might say, oh, that's convenient. And I'd say, no, dude, that's just reality. That's just science. The facts are that we literally don't have the originals from any work that got passed down from antiquity from the ancient world. They're not even available to us. Why? Writings at this, this time coming out of the ancient world were all written down on papyrus. We've got some of this in the arcade outside. I've got about six pieces up front. Come up and check it out when you're all done. Papyrus is a plant. It grows along the edge of the Nile River. It's a very fibrous plant. And what happens is when you, when you, when you uh, harvest it, when you pluck it, you can compress it down, you can squish it, flatten it out, and then you can get another one and put it on sort of at a 90 degree angle and lay it transverse. And what happens when that dries out, it's nice and thin, it's fairly firm, and it becomes a writing surface that will soak up ink. All the writings from the ancient world came to us on papyrus. Well, it wouldn't take a genius to determine that if you're, these are coming down from 2,000 years in, in environments that are not temperature controlled nor moisture controlled, throw a few sandstorms sand at these and so on and so forth, and you realize that these things become dust after a few hundred years. The only papyrus that survives to this day from the ancient world are ones that spent a pretty good amount of time traveling in air-sealed jars, such as what happened with the Dead Sea Scrolls, for example. Okay, now here's the question we need to ask. Will the absence of the originals prevent us from knowing what the original text would have said? If we don't have the originals, can we then not know what the original document would have said? And the answer to that question is no, that will not hinder us from knowing what the original said. All literature from the ancient world is reconstructed through a common process that's called textual criticism. A textual critic takes surviving uh, copies of manuscripts and compares them to be able to ascertain what the original document would have said. Now, to do this, a textual critic needs two friends. Number one, we're looking for manuscript quantity. We're looking for how many manuscripts do we have to compare, right? If there's variants and variations in the text, do you want to compare four copies of the Gospel of John or 400? The more you have, the more likely you are to reconstruct the original with confidence, right? So manuscript quantity is the first thing we're looking for. The second thing we're looking for is manuscript quality. How do we determine quality? It's the range of time from the original autograph, right? The author writing the original letter, the amount of time from that date to the oldest surviving copy. 
if there's this much time, that's better than having this much time to the original. Okay, so we're looking for those two different things. Let's start looking at how we compare. Now, if we look at various different texts from antiquity, I'll give you some different examples. Uh, On the top of your list here, you see Herodotus. He's an ancient Greek historian. We have eight copies of Herodotus, either in full or in part, that have survived from antiquity. Only eight. Tacitus is a Roman historian. He wrote about the reign of about a half dozen Roman emperors. We have a total of 20 copies of Tacitus, in whole or in part, that has survived from antiquity all the way down to Caesar, 260, Plato, 230. People loved Homer. Homer's Iliad, the most popular book from ancient Greece, there's 1,800 manuscript copies of Homer. Not bad. How does the New Testament compare in this regard? We have 5,300 manuscript copies of the New Testament in ancient Greek, in full or in part. That is a bunch, a lot to compare from. Now, what do these look like? Guys, some of these manuscripts are entire New Testaments that look like this. Others of these are individual scrolls. Remember, the New Testament is not one book. It's 27 individual writings that we bundle as a collective work, but it's 27 individual books. So this might be the book of Romans. This might be the book of 1 Corinthians, for example, but it's a piece of the New Testament that we can look at and survey. And a number of these 5,300 manuscripts, they're fragments that look kind of like this, right? But this type of criteria, we've got this for all of the works from antiquity. When we have eight copies of Herodotus, they're not eight complete copies of Herodotus. These are full copies, these are partial copies, or these are fragments that we have to compare, all right? The New Testament, 5,300 of these for us to be able to work through and compare. Now, how about quality? What's the time gap from the oldest surviving manuscript to the original? Again, we're looking for a tight time frame here when we can get it. Uh, Herodotus, remember we had eight copies of Herodotus to compare. When we look at Herodotus, we are 1,400 years from the original composition to the oldest surviving copy. 1,400 years. That's a lot of time for telephone to come into the transmission. Tacitus, it's 1,000 years. Uh, Caesar, I think that says 800. Plato's pretty good. Plato's in the 200 range. Homer's in the 400 range. These are pretty solid. You're doing really good in this game if you're somewhere in that 200 to 400 year date gap from the original to the oldest surviving copy. How does the New Testament compare in this world? 25 years. 25 years. So not only, and you'll see that there's a correlation between the number of manuscripts to compare and the likelihood of getting closer to the original date of composition. There's a very close correlation right there. Guys, the cool thing with this is we're literally still finding these. One of the things I loved at seminary was hearing some of the stories of recent discoveries. I heard a story in seminary of an explorer that was going through Egypt in the 1850s, um, and he went to a monastery that's at the foot of Mount Sinai called St. Catherine's, and he asked him if he could look around and have a bit of a tour, and they said, sure, come on in. And he discovered when looking through some of their archives, he found an old codex. A codex is like a, a New Testament bound as a book rather than a scroll that was written on vellum, not on papyrus. Vellum is like a skin. And it was dated to the 330 range, a complete New Testament. The funny thing, this was in the monastery's trash can. It was set aside to be disposed of. It was considered trash. And he said, can I have this? And they said, sure. 
and it's now in the British Museum. Codex Sinaiticus, dated to 330 AD, found in 1859. We found the John Ryland papyrus in the 1930s. This might seem trivial. It's sections of John 18, but this was carbon dated to 117 AD. 117. Isn't that wild? Guys, they can carbon date these. They can look at the type of ink that was used. They can look at the writing style to have a high degree of confidence to not just the date of composition, but what region this came out of as well, right? This John Ryland papyrus came from a section of the Mediterranean that was across the water from where John would have wrote the book. Just incredible. Uh, in the 1940s, we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, this collection of scrolls that were in air-sealed jars uh, that a shepherd boy accidentally broke when he threw a rock into a cave to try to scare his sheep out, and he heard a smash. What the heck smashed in the cave? Went up there and whole bunch of scrolls. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, gosh, we find all kinds of stuff. We find sections of the book of Mark, of Acts, of Romans, of First Timothy, Second Peter, and James. And these, guys, these sections of these books were dated to somewhere between 50 and 70 A.D., that is this close to the timeline of composition. Now you need to realize as we look at this, please realize the case for the authenticity and for the successful transmission of the New Testament text, it is overwhelming. Vastly more copies to compare, vastly tighter timeline than anything else from the ancient world. In fact, if you do a Lee Strobel on this and set out to disprove it, you're going to drop your case immediately because you're going to find what every other textual critic does. You're going to discover that the case for the New Testament successful transmission over time is 100% in favor of its preservation, not in terms of its corruption. The people who throw darts at this are coming from a completely unfounded position. When you look at the data, it is an open and shut case in favor of the New Testament's preservation. In fact, people who look at this, they don't even raise the objection anymore because it's a non-starter. Crazy. Now, one thing I learned in seminary, if I can put a PS on this, I actually found this quite humorous. I feel like God created almost a divine insurance policy on his word. And that might have been because the early church for the first 250 years after she was born, the early church went through an incredible period of persecution. We're gonna talk a little bit more about this next week, but up until about the time 305 or 308 AD when Constantine rose to power, the 250 years preceding that, Christians were hunted down and killed. Their sacred writings were rounded up and destroyed. And the early Roman emperors tried to rid the earth of God's word and God's people. Do you know that if they were successful in doing so, that we could still reconstruct the New Testament almost in its entirety? If these 5,300 manuscripts were gone and the New Testament in your hand was gone, we could still reconstruct the New Testament. You might say, how? From the writings of the early church fathers. Who are these people? Think of these guys as being the disciples of the disciples. Paul in his writings talks about Clement. Peter led a guy named Ignatius to the Lord. John led guys like Polycarp and, and Tertullian and Justin Martyrs, Hippolytus, Irenaeus. There are so many people that are the disciples of the disciples and these men wrote prolifically prolifically to each other and to the church of Philippi and the church of Philadelphia and the church of Corinth and the church of Ephesus. These men write so often and they quote the New Testament so often. By the way, you can find some of their writings in a book like the Apostolic Fathers that we find 
36,289 direct quotations from the New Testament in their letters. You can reconstruct the entire New Testament with the exception of 11 verses from their writings. Isn't that crazy? You guys, God was faithful to preserve his word. He even provided an insurance policy along the way. Isn't that crazy? Now, worship band, I'm going to invite you out to come up and uh, get ready to send us off here. My friends, I want to give you uh, a sense of confidence as you walk out of here today. The Bible in your hands, it is intact. It has not been passed down through a game like telephone. It is a direct translation of the original Greek text from which we have vastly more manuscript copies and closer dating to the originals than any other work from antiquity by far. And to answer my friend Jeff, the Bible wasn't first given in Greek and then translated to Aramaic and then to Persian and then to Coptic and then to Latin and then to German and then to something else and then to English. The Bible in your hands came straight from the original Koine Greek and was translated into English. One jump. Not through eight or 10 or 12 or 16. It was translated straight from the language of inspiration, Koine Greek, directly into English. No telephone occurred. More manuscripts to compare, closer dating than anything else from antiquity. Guys, you can have full confidence that the Bible in your hand is 100% trustworthy. It is the document that was composed 2,000 years ago. Now, you might be asking, or you might hear a critic say, all right, Mike, I'll, I'll grant that to you. The New Testament is intact, right? It has successfully survived the passage of time. I'll grant that to you. But why do you Christians think the Bible is the word of God? Why, why do you Christians think that, that your holy book is more special than someone else's? After all, don't all religions put forth a, a holy text, right? The, um, gosh, the, the Hindus have the Vedas. The Mormons have the Book of Mormon. Uh, Islam has the Quran. All of these religions put forth a book that they claim was divinely inspired. Why do you Christians think you have it right? It's a great question, right? If God wrote a book, how would you know? What would you look for in the book to know whether or not a text has been divinely inspired? Well, to answer the question, has God spoken? You're gonna have to come back next week. <laughs> and we're gonna tackle that subject head on next Sunday morning. I look forward to having you back then.